You're listening to the Urban Warfare Project Podcast from the Modern War Institute at West Point. I'm John Spencer, Chair of Urban Warfare Studies at MWI and host of this podcast. Today's guest on the podcast is my good friend, Dr. Jacob Stoyle. Now, I could give an introduction for Dr. Stoyle, but I'm going to let him do it. One, because we've known each other for so long, and we'll get into that, but also because it's long, and he'll be able to say the words without mistake like I would. Welcome to the show, Jacob. Thank you, John, and it's great to be on the show and spend time with you, even under terrible circumstances. So I have a number of hats I wear. I am the Chair of Applied History at the Modern War Institute. I am an Associate Professor of Military History at the U.S. Army School of Advanced Military Studies, and I am a Senior Fellow of the 40th Infantry Division Urban Warfare Center. Amazing. And now you can tell if listeners know me, uh, why me and Jacob are close friends, Um, but we also spent some time in Southern Israel together in 2021 um, I'll let you tell you say why um, you were basically our expert for a research trip into how the IDF approaches urban warfare, some of the challenges in the region. Um, we were not just in the South, but in the summer of 2021, we spent two weeks in the Modern War Institute doing a lot of research from everything from approach to urban warfare to the approach to underground warfare. Uh, but me and Jacob spent a lot of time there and it's, very memorable for me, especially as we start to talk about the, the TAC, right? The the day that will live in infamy, Israel's 9-11, uh, just the horrible things that happened just a week ago after, by the time this releases tomorrow morning. Um, we I, I've had lunch in Sir Dot. I, I've, I've spent a lot of time in many of these areas. And, and Jacob took me, you took me to kibbutz and, and explained to me how it worked. And I got to meet so many people. So I want this to be fact-based and it's closely related to an article I released this week on the Modern War Institute um, saying what would be the challenges the IDF will face if it launches a ground campaign into Gaza. And and we want to get there, but um, Jacob, could you give a little bit about your past research efforts, which I know are massive, but just a short summary on why were you you our lead into studying the IDF and their approach to urban warfare. Yeah. So I've worked in one guise or another researching Israeli military history and working with or researching the IDF for almost 20 years, um, since a little bit before 2006. And I've spent years worth of time in the country. And so between language and kind of access, this has given me a great perspective on various aspects of it. And I'm, I've done a lot of work with the urban warfare side and also working with some of their and studying some of their national police forces, who we might talk about a little bit later, who have a really big part of the urban warfare footprint and have a big part of the security footprint in a general sense and took a big part in the response to these operation uh, to these events and in the operations that have followed. As part of this, I've managed to spend time with lots of different parts of their ground forces. And really my interest is broader than urban warfare when it comes to Israel. It's looking at how their strategic and military culture and history impacts the way they do business and how the US 
can learn from this, but also what we have to teach. So really trying to work to build that mutual understanding and that synergy between two hopefully allied and partnered countries. As a result, I try to facilitate different uh, events. And I think the opportunity we had as the from the U.S. School of Advan- Army School of Advanced Military Studies and from and from MWI to go to Israel together in summer 2021 to look at strategic culture, to look at multi-domain or multi-dimensional, depending which country you're talking about operations, and to look at, of course, urban warfare, was a really unprecedented opportunity. And one of the things I think about, to your point, John, is that a lot of those areas in which we spent time in the South, particularly. And some of the people who hosted us are now among the casualty list and were some of the worst affected areas. And so while we'll keep this very professional, we'll keep this very analytic as we owe your listeners and as we as kind of the more military academic professionals owe it to our community to be able to have this conversation. It's not far from my mind when this first happened. Some of the pictures we have together at the Black Arrow position and at some of those border posts. Yeah, hundred percent. No, it's been hard. It really has been hard, you know, as a military analyst and and doing a lot of interviews and questions about it. But I mean, war is a human endeavor to include analysts, and and we both you've spent a lot more time than I have. But it really touches me to see video videos and footage of places that I have stood and understand the horrible things that happened there. I mean, I visited Bucha in Ukraine about less than a month after. The massacre was discovered. They were still. They pulled seventeen bodies after the day that me and Colonel Liam Collins left Bucha. But just to this, the level, yeah, it, I agree. And and my thoughts and prayers go out to you, uh, your family and friends, since I know that it's it's even more so for some of your the people you know or you know you love um, that are still part of the or were victim or all of that and to all the listeners to be clear so i wanted to start off with a a brief summary right we're going to talk about the challenges that as analysts uh both of us um of urban warfare written a lot about a a lot about it we both teach at the 40th infantry division urban operations planners course the only one in the world talking about division level and brigade level operations against uh, or in urban operations, such as attacking a city, a city, defending a city, trying to achieve the assigned military objectives, which is made by the political leadership, and all the nuances of that. But I want to you know, set the stage of basically what happened, even though it's been a week and the figures um, are still coming in, and I definitely don't want to talk about how it happened or why it happened. I just wanted to to start off with, okay, look, on October 7th, Hamas militants um, using terrorist tactics cross the border between Gaza and Israel using a very years, a very coordinated attack of unknown number of militants using terrorist tactics. They the numbers from a thousand to two thousand crossing the border, and then right now the number of casualties of the uh, people of Israel twelve hundred dead or a thousand two hundred dead over three thousand wounded, but that number changes every day as they clear and find all the horrible things that have happened on that day, right? And I, I 
it's so hard to talk about, but okay. After that attack, let's talk a little bit about what the response was. Cause Jacob, you, you have connections that I don't have. Although I watch TV, I'm glued to the IDF spokesman, uh, you know, multiple ways, especially in today that you can get information and actually see videos that you don't want to see because unlike the horrible things that happened in other parts of the world, in other parts of other wars, the terrorists don't, or the military or whatever didn't upload so many horrific things so quickly, and then they go viral and then have to be shown to the world. But you are aware of a lot of the initial responses because this was so overwhelming coordinated um hamas took out the observation post they attacked the frontline um outpost they took they took out the uh, very sophisticated electronic uh um gate with a bulldozer in the, in the in the fence line um they used took out the communication system they they used drones they um overwhelmed the idf uh, and then entered um, civilian, you know, these kibbutzes and, and small villages and just started massacring, mutilating, and killing everybody. But you had a couple of stories I found interesting as I don't want to jump right to the the military operation. I want to talk about, um, yes, they were caught off guard, but some of the, the amazing stories of good people trying to save as many people as you can. Can you tell us a couple of those? Yeah. And actually, before we get there, I think there are some things to think about from the Hamas attack itself that are pretty new. Um, Hamas really changed its tactics with this attack. And we can argue whether the tactics they used were terrorist tactics or ISIS and Daesh tactics. They certainly use, there are certainly some really clear visual borrows from that. And the sophistication, you're entirely right, um, was of a new level. To the point of uploading the videos, this has been a real clear part of what they're trying to do. The horror is somewhat the point. There has at least been at least several instances where the Hamas and the people who followed them. So one other thing to clarify, this hasn't just been Hamas. There was the first wave of Hamas, and it's looking increasingly likely that it was followed up by other people coming out of Gaza and capitalizing on this. Um, and so... Really, some some of the seems to be kind of civilians or other forms of militants coming out of Gaza. And one of the things they've been doing is in certain cases where they're going to murder someone or other kinds of violations, they've been taking that person's phone and recording it onto the person's own Facebook page. So the murder is on their Facebook page. The murder is on their social media. They've uploaded a lot to TikTok. And that really is borrowing in a lot of ways from some Daesh tactics, some ISIS tactics, where the horror is part of it, is part and parcel of what they're trying to do um, and is part of the effect. And so I think it's worth saying that part of the reason these videos are circulating so much is because Hamas and its kind of co-conspirators or its allies and partners wish them to be circulating. And so we have to think about what we're watching beyond what we want to watch, right? We don't really want to see those unless you have to for work or for analysis reasons, but also what the effect is that these militant groups are going from. But in the initial response, I think we see some really interesting and great stories of the Israeli military system. So the Israeli military system is built very heavily along 
individual unit and individual personal initiative. And so one of the so there are a lot of stories of people taking the initiative and bringing the fight to the enemy or holding out in their own. So all of these small villages had small territorial defense units that are citizens, not even citizen soldiers. They're citizens who live in that village who are tasked with holding out for as long as possible until the IDF can get there. And we could maybe circle in a different podcast after the dust has settled, circle back to how effective they were, questions about how prepared they were. But in at least two villages, and we can see even some urban combat principles, one, the head of the village militia heard sounds that sounded more like gunfire and less than rocket fire and was able to take his small forces. And when I say small and unprofessional, we're talking people, some cases in their 70s, and push them to forward defense positions where they were able to hold off Hamas. In another village, the village, the head of the village defense realized that they weren't going to be able to hold Hamas. It was already too late for that. And so she arranged, arrayed her forces, her small very unprofessional forces in a series of ambushes going deeper and deeper into the village to delay and eventually defeat Hamas. So in the kind of initial response, we can see that we can also see a lot of instances of police officers just rushing in to try to stem this overwhelming tide. And a lot of individual soldiers who were on leave in the area fighting the war from where they were. And a lot died doing that, trying to buy time and trying to fight the war. One of my favorite stories, though, and one I think of the greatest stories here, is the commander of the Israeli Training and Doctrine Command, a major general. Um, and for those of you who don't know who are listeners, Israel practices rank deflation. So they only have one three-star general, and that's the chief of the general staff. So a two-star or major general is a very, very high-ranking officer in the Israeli ground forces, assembled basically a temporary small unit as this was happening, as things were breaking down, and fought his way not only to the front, but fought to a position called the Black Arrow position, which is a really key overlook around a lot of Gaza, and reportedly held that position until he could be relieved by the IDF. Reports say that his small scratch unit of who was in his headquarters, this isn't you know taking a quick reaction force or anything like that, was able to kill somewhere above two dozen or higher Hamas terrorists and other allied uh, Hamas forces. And another case, the head of their national training center, a brigadier general, one-star general from Armored Corps, did a similar thing of grabbing who he could and pushing forward into the fight. He unfortunately was very, very seriously wounded doing so. The training base for Homefront Command practically emptied out. Homefront Command is responsible for civil defense. A lot of them are non-combat personnel. Practically emptied out as they rushed into the fight. The former deputy chief of staff of the IDF individually sent himself down to the front and appears to have responded to text messages from parents whose children were isolated behind Hamas positions and has gone forward with a small, again, put together a small unit and went forward trying to extract them. And so when we look kind of overall Part of what starts to be the story of slowing down this Hamas offensive are these individual stories of people going forward and doing what they could when it was in front of them, even if that's not part of their position description, even if that's very different from what their position would normally require or from what we might tend to think about the role of that kind of officer. And 
as things happen and as more comes out, there are more and more of these stories uh, emerging. We can also see the tremendous, tremendous impact both the Magav or border police and the blue police, the civil police have had in rushing to the aid of forces and rushing to the aid of these towns. Now, for the people in these towns, these took impossibly long times, sometimes fatally long times. Um, but again, the rushing into fire, there's a video of very good video circulating of a police unit rescuing wounded IDF soldiers from an APC, jumping out of their vehicle under fire, approaching the IAPC and pulling out the IDF forces and then going to rescue individual civilians. So there's lots and lots of that happening. As that progressed, the response became more and more organized. Um, so you had self-mobilization of a lot of the IDF reserves, which may be something we can talk about, where people knew they were going to get called up and went to the front even before they had orders. But as the day progressed, and certainly as the second day progressed, a lot of the response became more organized. Units like the multi-dimensional unit, which would be similar to a multi-domain unit for ours, their kind of testbed experimental unit, went into action in one of the kibbutzim um, to try to liberate the kibbutz. Their special operations unit started to go into action to do hostage rescue, as Hamas had kept hostages on some of the kibbutzim in Israeli territory, and the Israeli Air Force and the Israeli Navy went into action doing air interdiction to prevent further waves of Hamas and allied terrorist organizations, or even just kind of murderous civilians, from crossing the border further. You know, it's hard not to, when you say the multi-domain, um, this is one that you, you took us to, to understand the experimentation uh, and, and how the uh, IDF are approaching multi-domain operations so i remember that unit and, and those people so that that's hard um so talk to us a little bit about that because some people hear the number of recently uh three hundred thousand reserves called up um let give us a quick overview of what the active duty idf is how the military is built on this reserve call-up. How long are you required to stay in the reserves? And what is that number in comparison to the available? Yeah, those are great questions. And on the what we just were talking about, the multidimensional unit, um, unfortunately, the commander of the unit who we met when we were out there was killed in action as part of leading the liberation. The colonel, the commander of that unit, was uh, killed in action while leading his forces into the liberation of the, one of the keyboard theme. And that's actually something to talk about here, which is the different idea of what officer leadership looks like in the a traditional U.S. construct. The job of the officer is to go forward and lead from the front, but to manage the battle. In a lot of cases in the IDF, the job of an officer, especially in a difficult situation like this, the job of a combat leader even, is to lead from the front and really lead their forces into the battle to be that example to everyone else. I remember that. I remember um, in studying the Battle of Janine, there was an issue with where was the commander. And immediately, one of the first reports of an officer killed in the opening hours, I saw that the Nahal Brigade commander was killed. And everybody's like, well, why was the brigade commander fighting? And, like, um, and I remember the lessons that you taught us or we learned in our trip about how that's the use, the, the role of the commander is a little bit more you know, different. And of course, context matters. The battle matters. Then 
maybe the U.S. or somebody might approach it. Yeah, and in that case, the, uh, Colonel Steinberg, the commander of Nachal, was taking his headquarters unit, his kind of forward headquarters unit and bodyguard, and was rushing to try to find and rescue isolated individual soldiers and small units, uh, or at least that's what the reports are starting shaping up to look like. Perfect. So Colonel Steinberg, yeah, was killed trying to go rescue some of his isolated forces, and that's the exact role of a commander there. So on the reserve forces, the way the IDF is structured, and we'll talk about the police in a second, is that the reserve component of the IDF is the warfighting component of the IDF. The conscript form part of the IDF, which we often mistakenly call the active, but it's really to think about it as a conscript, has a lot of the administrative functions, a lot of the intelligence functions, the logistics, the sustainment, but less of the warfighting functions. For those who are in combat units, with some very, very few exceptions, um, especially which are largely on the naval end and some other things, the role of the time in the conscript duty is to manage day-to-day security situations and prepare you for your longer reserve service. And it used to be for a time that reserve service went up into 55. Now, for the most part, required reserve service for combat units is up to 40. So you'll do somewhere between one and six years on average in your conscript time from the time you're 18. Um, and you could stay longer as an officer in some other positions. But then you switch to reserve. And reserve is really where the majority of the war fighting units are and what Israel fights its wars with. The, Conscript time is just meant to hold on for a brief period. And I remember the, the debate, and I know like uh, my episode on the Israeli approach to urban warfare with General Finkel, there is a debate in the Knesset and, and, and within the, the military about increasing the size of the standing force, the, the mandatory service, um, which does include some career officers, right? Yeah. C- career soldiers. It does. So more career officers, career there aren't really career NCOs in the combat arm of the conscript force. They, you can have warrant officers in the conscript arm of the combat force of the IDF. They are mainly non-combat. Um, even if they start out as combat soldiers to stay career um, as an NCO, they'll switch over to a non-combat profession. But you do have career combat officers. And it's a challenge, right? Because there's a the conscript force is better equipped to deal with the newest situation. So Janine is a really good example. The reserve force had been used to fighting in Lebanon, and now they're in the urban environment of Janine, whereas the conscript force had, through the early part of the Second Infada, been starting to experience urban warfare. The conscript force tends to also be in a lot better physical shape. Um, but the reserve force has more experience, and you see this in the Second Lebanon War, where the reserve force is used to fighting in Lebanon, and when it goes in, it's like, okay, we've done Lebanon before, we'll do it again. Um, and there's some element of that on Gaza as well. I wanted to show the representation of that. I think it's the, is it the commander or the deputy commander of uh, of, of one of the current operations that we're going to talk about? And you look at his bio, and he has served in almost every uh, m- recent Israel Defense Force war in time, which is crazy because you go down his bio, you're like, he was there, he was there, he was there, he was there. Uh, and, and as you introduced me to people and a couple of people I have on my podcast, that, that is, uh, I think unique to the Israel defense force. We have a reserve 
officer who served in like every major battle that of their lifetime that Israel has been involved in. I agree with you. And if you want to think of the most extreme example of this, there is someone currently doing reserve service who is over the age of 90. Um, he fought the British before there was a state of Israel and has fought in ever has been in an active reserve component in every war since. Um, he is armed um, right now, but he is giving lessons learned to units who are about to go into the fight um, from his vast experience. So the number's a little bit hard to pin down. There have been there was the initial self mobilization and first tier mobilization that happened in forty eight hours. The rough numbers for that are somewhere over three hundred thousand. The government then authorized an additional call up of three hundred and sixty thousand, but that may also cover some of the people who mobilized themselves to the front in the first call up. Now, in addition to that. There's also the police and the border police who've mobilized their reserve and are drafting in volunteer reserves from people who do not have a reserve duty anymore, who've aged out of it, but are needed to cover police functions and rear area security since so many of the police in the South were killed during the initial onslaught and then subsequent response. And then there are the village defense forces along the North who've been taking part in the defense from Hezbollah attacks, as well as in the West Bank who are also getting plussed up with reservists. So it's actually a pretty hard number to tell what the how many people are mobilized right now. What's the what's the before mobilization? What's the standing you call it conscript force numbers like 175, 165? Yeah, about 169 to 175 depending on the year, somewhere around there. Maybe maybe as many as 200. In theory the reserve component is about 400,000. Yeah. And, and talk to me just a really quickly about this self-mobilization factor that you've told me about before. And we heard stories about um, where something happens in Israel and then people self-mobilize to their units because reserves are assigned to units, right? They're not just assigned to the military. Yeah. Um, that's something different than our reserves, right? I, I, thought somebody, I saw somebody ridiculously comparing, um, saying that Israel has called up more reserves than the, the entire U.S. military reserves. I'm like, look, that, that terminology doesn't it's not comparable in the way it's, you know, the way the roles and, and, and the functions, but tell, talk to me about self-mobilization. Yeah. So you're entirely right. It's a really different idea. And some of the reserves um, who have to do additionally voluntary reserve duty can be called up as much as three days a week, every week. Right. So there, there are different tiers of readiness, but voluntary mobilization is been a feature of Israeli national emergencies where, people report to their organic units before they're mobilized. So they know they're probably going to get mobilized, and they, so they will show up to their unit and kind of start going, knowing that the mobilization order will catch up with them on the way. Um, and it's been a really big feature. The other thing that happens is, are people who are exempt from reserve duty or have finished their reserve component or have a temporary exemption such as They've lived abroad for the last two plus years. And this is something we're actually seeing in a pretty big deal from America and from Europe, from Europe as well. We'll fly back. They'll come back and rejoin their reserve units even before they get orders. They'll start making those plans because it's part of this kind of national character, this, this me historical memory of the threat. And the I think in the U.S. culture, we'd call it military parlance, we'd call it a propensity to service. So before this began, there were lots and lots of seemingly deep divisions in the Israeli polity. 
And those have largely been erased for the duration of this fight. And so that's kind of where this element comes to. It's an idea of, well, if I can't join my unit, I can find somebody else who needs me right now while I'm waiting for my unit to call up. Let me go to the front, but preferably let me go join my unit and wait for that call up to happen once I get there. Right. Which is the, you know, I've started to get the question of why does, as we start to see fundraisers for IDF helmet or IDF reserve helmets and boots and um, bulletproof vests, maybe that context gives a little bit of understanding to people out there. Like why, why would that need be necessary? Because of the scale, right? If we say there's a hundred and max, 170,000, 190,000 standing forces in training in, in, in the, in their mandatory service who, who have full kit. And then you have a reserve, what is the, the normal like reserve stockpile that you might have ready for national emergency? So I don't want to get into specific numbers of what that looks like, but it's certainly less than 50% uh, to 50, somewhere of the total capacity, it's not going to be near that top number, right? right? It's definitely going to be near the mid. And since they are now needing overcapacity, right, they have to replace special operations units that took huge amounts of casualties. So they're going to need to bring in, for instance, veterans of special operations units who are now beyond their reserve service. So those were people who never were anticipated to get kit. Yep. Um, they're having to bring in people to augment the police. Hamas also left behind infiltrators relatively deep at 20 kilometers and 15 kilometers deep into Israel proper. And those infiltrators are ambushing roads. So they need people to patrol the roads. And then they need these village defense militias. And one of the things that has been become really, really clear unfortunately, is that the village defense forces who are that emergency contact layer were not equipped on the whole, uh, despite some performing exceedingly well, were not equipped on the whole sufficiently for the task that happened. And now we can look to the northern border where Hezbollah has been testing the waters of seeing some infiltrations and using fires, where on the Syrian border, a similar thing has happened. These all village defense militias, these all local security forces, the people who are now expanding the police force they all need the equipment as well yeah um and so it was never anticipated that we would see this kind of call up again um it's a bigger and faster mobilization than certainly anything in the last 50 years um there's some evidence that it's a far more wide-reaching and faster mobilization than the 1973 war and if that's the case this is a level of mobilization we haven't seen since the 67 war or possibly even the 48 war so it's not a situation I think that was well anticipated. Right. Okay. So, you know, we got to get to urban warfare, right? Yeah. Right. That's, an, that's what this podcast is about <laughs> at the end of the day. Um, and we, we teach, uh, especially at the, at the urban operations planner, of course we teach, we use historical examples because it's not about what people think they're going to do, but let, let's look at what's happened in the past. And Israel has plenty of experience in urban warfare, unfortunately, to include in densely, I, densely contested urban areas right because because of, of of these different wars and i often say that where some people want to you know before this right in, in my own studies like okay yes the idf is a very a highly trained highly equipped force for urban operations but don't misapply their approach to let's say an expeditionary military that has to be able to do urban warfare anywhere in the world uh, idf has very specific environments, although it's very varied since it has so many 
you know, potential um, operations from the north to the south to the east to the west. I mean, uh, the, the environments are so drastic in a short amount of geography, right? Um, I learned this even going into a Hezbollah tunnel in the north versus a Hamas tunnel. And the, the geology is just different. But the problem of understanding what a potential ground campaign since because of the time we're talking about this, it hasn't happened. I did think, and that's why I wrote in the article, although I did show vignettes of like operations that I think that a ground campaign with what we think the political objective is, and if you want to weigh in on that, um, only you know Israel knows the political objective. I did in the article compare like operations in which are modern examples of um, a large-scale combat operation uh, in dense urban terrain. And I also give, I, I don't like the, the the media comment that while Gaza is a highly dense urban environment, and by Gaza I mean the cities within the Gaza Strip, because there's not it's not one continuous contiguous urban area. Um, the media says it's the most densest place on the earth. I don't know where, where that got it. I think if you Google it, it comes up. It's not true. Um, just 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 fact based. Um, and the most dense portion of the Gaza Strip is Gaza City. And the most dense portion of that is about 9,000 residents per square mile. And that's how we measure density in general. There's no agreement. And Baghdad is way more than that. Mosul's may way more than that. Uh, it's not the most dense. As a matter of fact, no city in the Gaza Strip even makes the list of the top 50 most densest cities in the world. Doesn't mean it's a, not a massive challenge to conduct a military operation in. It's just not true, but so I, I, I listed examples in there because uh, uh, if you're going to compare it to what we think might happen, um, history does is a good guide, as in histories of like operations with a large scale combat operation, a defending element, certain capabilities. And I want to talk through those, but before we start that, because I have a list of challenges, right? The challenges we think at this point, if a ground campaign is conducted into the Gaza Strip, into the urban areas to achieve the political goal, which which I personally, John Spencer, think is the one, which is to clear urban terrain in order to remove Hamas military capability. Politicians will say a lot of things, but nobody knows what the mission will be given to them. I'm guessing that that will be, based on what I've heard so far, the military objective given to the idea. And it, that will be an air, land, sea, cyber, space full joint operation to conduct that objective. But I want to talk about the last time that the idea did a ground campaign into the Gaza Strip and then broad brush what happened. And that's another reason why I threw some stuff into the article, but I have you, I have the expert in that. And uh, what happened, what was the scale uh and, and some of the general kind of big points on it so that would might be a guide or might not be a guide. And, and, I, and I think we were talking about like, yes, 2014, Operation Protective Edge, last ground campaign, the IDF into the Gaza Strip. There are vast differences as well to this, both in the perceived assigned mission, scale, uh, modern technologies, all that. I really want to get into that. What do you think? Yeah. So I think the mission's going, there are lots of differences, including in the terrain. So one thing to hit upon that and just reemphasize is exactly what you said, that 
I believe the way they come to Gaza being the most densely populated is it's the most densely populated territorial unit, which is a really weird formulation to put it. <laughs> what is um, that? I think like geographic area that's its own defined area that's not one city or it's a I'm not quite sure entirely what it means. Um, it is a statistic that's floating out there, but you're entirely right. There are more densely populated. And that's actually one of the challenges of Gaza is you're switching very, very rapidly between urban, highly dense urban terrain and rural terrain with urban facilities having overwatch over them. Yeah. So you're fighting a rural battle in a farm field or an orchard, or as we saw in some of the training environments, greenhouses are a particular area of challenge with overwatch from multi-story buildings. Yeah. Um, and so that's one of the challenges that makes it a little bit unique, right? That's not a very common feature globally. Um, with Protective Edge, the goal of Protective Edge was very, very limited. It was really to target and degrade Hamas and Islamic Jihad and some other organizations' subterranean infrastructure. This was the purpose of it. It was not meant to, say, reoccupy the entire strip. And so on the whole, it didn't penetrate terribly deeply into the most dense urban terrain. The one area that it really penetrated into that we can kind of look at and say, hey, what is this going to be like, was the penetration into Shijaya, which is almost a suburb or a neighborhood of Gaza City, but is still not the most dense. It's really the kind of eastern outskirts of Gaza City. When's the last time, Jacob, that you think that the IDF have been in the, the center of Gaza City? With the exception of certain special operations units, I don't think off the top of my head they've been in there since the Israeli withdrawal from, uh, and from Gaza in 2005. So it's been a really long time since they've been there. Now, I could be off on that. There may have been some penetration in onto the in the 2006 war um, or some limited penetration into 2008. But from my memory, there hasn't been any major operations in kind of the most dense core since that kind of 2000, since the withdrawal. To give you an idea of how long it's been. Um, which is, of course, one of the reasons reserves are going to be interestingly useful and useful is because you'll have people who served in Gaza City itself and in the most dense areas of Gaza City. That's right. Yeah, that's unique, right? Because even as a U.S. military, and I, I was in the Battle of Slaughter City, I, I, I was in, um, it's rare to for the U.S. military to be, like the the people who fought in the Battle of Mosul, or that even supported the Battle of Mosul in 2017, the U.S. forces that supported it, had never been to that area ever in their life. They, they had to learn it when they get there. That's one a huge advantage to the IDF. Um, is that you have many people who will be involved in the operation that were involved in the previous one. Yeah, and that's a really important one. Now, we're getting a little bit on in time for it to be, you know, 2005 to now, we're kind of hitting that 20-year mark, but there will still be people, and especially some of those voluntary reservists who've come back in will have that memory. Um, so Protective Edge was actually a fairly limited penetration, although it was high-tempo, and it had a very limited objective of destroying that tunnel infrastructure. And so I think there's a limit to what we can do from, from what we can learn from it. So destroying a tunnel complex, I could actually get, I, I actually, you tell me if I'm wrong, I watched an interview with the deputy commander of Operation Protective Edge, and he said his mission was to reduce. Right. That is, in fact, 
that's in fact a better way to uh, play uh, to say it. it was to reduce the subterranean infrastructure it was not entirely to destroy it um that would have been a less limited operation you're entirely right there it's to reduce it and particularly to what the goal was to eliminate the majority of the subterranean infrastructure that crossed the border from gaza into israel yeah and what okay let's talk size right so um I don't want to speculate on what the size of this operation will be. It'll be massive. In 2014, um, from my what I was able to, the graphic, you know, a, a really good study on Operation Protective Edge. It was three divisions, uh, 75,000 reserve call up. Does that sound about right? That sounds about right, though. That can be a little bit misleading because they weren't maneuver divisions working in the way we think of it. And a lot of those um, divisions were sent elsewhere, right? Were sent to secure, those forces were sent to secure the northern border, sent to secure the West Bank, it said, um, because there was an ongoing operation in the West Bank at the time, Operation Brothers Keeper, to try to bring back kidnapped Israelis um, who had been kidnapped in the West Bank. Right. So there's, um, so yes, that's roughly accurate, um, but this will be and already is an order of magnitude different. Okay, let's talk challenges, uh, Jacob. I don't want to rush through it all, but you know, there's a there's a there is a stop into what they let me do on my my own podcast just because the the, the literally the audio starts to tweak out. Uh, the challenges in which you know, given the past, and and you were no, I didn't you know, the the article. I I want to talk about that. I don't want to talk about the 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 all the lessons learned from past experiences where i do believe even though i'm listing challenges the idf has developed many um solutions approaches to the challenges i just want to talk the challenges and say how big of a challenge they are the fact that they will be present because no urban operation is the same the terrain is not the same the density is not the same the enemy capability is not the same the mission is not the same but we kind of have an ideal of the status of the IDF. Uh, we have the status of uh, the mission. We have a, uh, a status of Hamas. We have a, a status of even Gaza, as in, yes, I think Hamas, and I'll talk about it, has been able to um, unfortunately gather an, an immense military capability, but it isn't as what we might see like in the second, in the 2017 battle of Mosul, where ISIS had two years to prepare defense. And yes, you could say Hamas has had nine years to prepare defense, but that's not like a the phase defensive lines that ISIS created with massive tank ditches and obstacle belts and all these things because most of Hamas's preparation has had to be uh, under concealment, at least, from aerial observation and things like that, although they clearly were able to mass a lot despite that. The number one challenge, Jacob, that I think that the IDF will have and Israel will have and you tell me if it's true, as I say in my article, is that Israel has fought almost every war or battle it's been involved in with the time ticking before the political will, both internally and externally through international pressure, rides out. It's like there's a clock saying that we have to get this done in a certain amount of time before that clock ends. Is that a true statement? Is that a massive challenge? That is, I would actually say, the most massive challenge, um, unless the internal. Um, Israel, I, who knows, we, we could be proof and wrong tomorrow, but it seems that Israel has an unending w end of a uh, well of will 
for this operation, right? There is, in fact, anything less than a large-scale operation would be politically very costly for a lot of the Israeli leadership because that's where the Israeli will is. But it's that external factor. Uh, the Israelis find that the U.S. has been, in most of their operations, has been a really, really determinant factor on when that operational clock runs out. And it's a central planning factor. It was a central planning factor in 2006. It's been a central planning factor in most of Israel's wars is when will the U.S., particularly the international community, a little bit less so, but in more general, call the clock? When will they say, this is it's time for you to end the operation? And can Israel hit victory conditions before then? So that that is really the number one issue going on right now in terms of the success of this operation. Given enough time, the Israeli military will be able to largely dismantle Hamas because of the overmatch. But that key caveat is given enough time and enough support. Right. And I've asked, I've been asked already to, to guesstimate how long to achieve that mission. It would be too many variables, too many. Um, I, I, and I agree with you, even the 1973 Yom Kippur War in the Battle of Suez City, which you helped me um, and the IDF History Department helped me with in the understanding of how much time was a factor in launching that operation and preparing for it and trying to execute that uh, urban operation against Suez City factored into what eventually happened. The next one is human shields, right? So we know, like literally when we're teaching urban warfare, the, uh, when we try to give the best example of uh, non of non state and state actors that use human shields as a form of warfare for the purpose of what they call lawfare, which is purposely put protected populations in protected sites and intermix that with their military objectives with the intent to restrict the use of force by the other military, a war crime. How big of a factor, well, one, so the example we use is Hamas because this is what they do, but how big of a factor is human shields in the challenge of conducting the operation we, that might happen? Yeah, it's absolutely a phenomenally big challenge and also because it ties directly into the other challenge of international will and international time. Do you see traditionally civilian casualties start to really horrifically and unfortunately escalate? the kind of tragedy of what's going to happen to the people of Gaza during such an operation is enormous. And as that escalates and as that tragedy grows, generally the international appetite for continuing the operation drops. And to go to a point you made earlier about how long they've had to prepare this, well, they haven't made the kind of fixed defensive lines that Daesh was able to make in Mosul and elsewhere. What is important about this is they have built almost all new construction and building and infrastructure in Gaza with a dual purpose, with military tied into the civilian infrastructure. So it's not that there are tank ditches, but there are potentially firing points in, and stockpiles and communications headquarters in mosques. Famously in the Gaza case, in they've launched rockets and have long, rocket storage in hospitals in school areas, and obviously in civilian houses and neighborhoods. And to complicate the matters, one of the things we always teach when we teach about urban warfare is see if you can offer the civilian population a way out. And the U.S., as uh, we're speaking today, has been trying to negotiate with Egypt 
to allow for a humanitarian carter where the civilian population can leave Gaza. So far, those negotiations have proven unsuccessful. And so ultimately, this civilian population is going to be trapped in the area where fighting is happening. And Hamas has built their defenses with that in mind to really maximize the casualties and suffering of the Gazan civilian population during any military engagements, both for lawfare, but also to for the purpose of uh, playing to the ref, if you will, of going to the international community. And I really want to emphasize how much of a tragedy this will be for the Gazan population, uh, especially kids and people who have no choice but to be in harm's way during this urban operation. Right. No, me too. And a hundred percent. And I, I, even as we speak, as we're recording this podcast, there is international um, pressure building on the air campaign that the IDF have launched because while they were surprised and this is what I learned again, that um, the IDF has a massive target list based on Hamas military targets, command and control cells, uh, bunkers, tunnel complexes, leadership um, that are all um, pre-designated as that's a military target. And the IDF, which I found surprising, we talked about in, even in our course about you know, the need to have that um, targeting um, in the legality and in accordance with all laws of war. And one of the things I found even in 2014 operation in Protective Edge, how many legal advisors were pushed to the tactical level, because usually you keep those at a higher level, right? Pushed to the tactical level to make on the spot um, to ensure that, especially with uh, targeting, it was in accordance with the law of war before the target was engaged in all proportionality, necessity, distinction, all, all, all of these aspects. Yeah, and in 2014, they went, as well as in some of the other operations, they went actually above and beyond. If you want to compare to USA rules of engagement in the Mosul context or things like that, they went above and beyond the legal standard in geofence text message to people who live near some of the key targets, telling them to avoid them or that there was an incoming strike, as well as roof knocking, yes. which is an IDF um, or IAF tactic of dropping a low-yield device on top of the roof a couple minutes before the incoming strike to really tell the people to leave that. And one of the changes you've seen with this operation is you've seen far less of that. So a lot more staying towards the law of armed conflict, but less of the above and beyond requirement. And this is partially why some of the there are so many targets being hit right now, is some of those were targets that in previous and more limited campaigns were viewed as too high risk to hit. Yeah. That they were critical Hamas infrastructure, but too high risk in their environment to hit. Right. And so they're on the target list now. Yeah, and I didn't want to go into the, again, I, I'm breaking my own rule with not going into yep. what the assumption, but I have seen, I just I just tweeted out actually about the the leaflets, right? There's so many strategies in which you can um, make steps to protect civilians in, in this historical, in operations like this. Ideally, what you do, if possible, again, time is always a factor, is surround the city, um, empty it, wait and empty in the entire civilian population, which never happens, uh, so they always a portion always stays, but you get ninety percent out, whatever. But leaflets, uh, calling, text messaging, establishing green corridor, like all that. I said I wouldn't get into the solutions. The next challenge, and we talked about it, is the tunnels um, because it, it goes with targeting, it goes with um, human shields. Uh, outside of North Korea, uh, I don't know of a more tunnelized 
uh, environment in the world where I think it's there's an open statistic of the last operation military operation against uh, Hamas during 2021 Guardian of the Walls. They destroyed 60. The IDF destroyed 60 miles of Hamas tunnel tunnels, um, which I know is only a fraction of what is there because of the geology, because of the the Hamas tactic of that they have hundreds and hundreds of miles of tunnels underneath the Gaza Strip. Yeah, and that's a really, really particular challenge, and we should talk about there's also a difference between something that the Israelis have gotten very successful at, which is defending against infiltration, especially cross-border infiltration, by tunnel, and that's something they've actually been helping Department U.S. Department of Homeland Security with. And going into an area where there are just a huge density of subterranean constructs. Right, these are two different operations, and the expedition going into an area with this huge density of subterranean construct is certainly a unique and really difficult challenge. We've seen in the past subterranean constructs be used to allow for reinfiltration of cleared areas. We've seen them be used to move uh, fighters around, to move supply around, to fight from, in some cases, a fighting position, uh, subterranean-based fighting positions, and to shelter leadership, command and control, and resources. So any part of this operation will involve the search for subterranean constructs and then engagement. And what makes that really, really challenging is, at least if the past is any guide of the future, a number of these subterranean constructs have openings into, again, civilian buildings, but also buildings that are normally on the protected list, such as schools, mosques, hospitals, etc. Absolutely. And um, don't have time to get into the challenge of tunnels, massive tunnels, massive channels. You can't see there, you can't breathe there, you can't communicate, you can't navigate, you can't... Um, shoot you can't do anything unless you have specialized equipment specialized training at this scale um it, it will be a massive challenge next challenge and maybe a different podcast for a different time since we've both worked on yeah right uh and we both had this giant question of like okay i understand the challenge of tunnels now you know it's in the environment what are you gonna do about it uh, right which is the massive uh, so next one is rockets right so this is where okay uh, hamas is the the is the the military in Gaza? It it doesn't have military capability, so it does resort to, I want to say, guerrilla tactics. Um, it want it needs it doesn't have it can't uh, it can't attack the IDF in depth. But the one thing it has and clearly has more than previously is rockets. How will that in, well, is that a challenge for the IDF in conducting uh, a land campaign against Hamas rockets? Yeah, it's a challenge for really two reasons. One, it means the, there is no kind of safe mobilization area. When the U.S. thinks it thinks about a seaport of, of debarkation or an airport of debarkation that's kind of outside the indirect fire range, the start line and all of the mobilization line and the support area for any operation are going to be inside that rocket fire. In fact, the majority of the country is inside that rocket fire, which brings to the next problem, which is that as long as Hamas can continue to fire rockets from Gaza, which it can do as long as the Israeli force hasn't largely occupied Gaza, it can continue to have an impact on the Israeli civilian population throughout, and it has the impact, the ability 
to continue to kill Israeli civilians, which are largely the purpose of these rocket strikes, just to kill and terrorize Israeli civilians. It has launched already thousands of rockets. If Hezbollah becomes more involved at the point of Hezbollah or some of the forces in Syria are involved in this, this means the entirety of Israel will be under rocket fire. There won't be any part of the country that's not. And so it will be one of the key IDF missions and a very, very difficult one because a lot of these rockets are stored in those underground complexes and protected by human shields. Right, These are additive challenges. And I think that's something to really point out from the challenges you mentioned in your article. Each of these challenges are additive and exponential with each other. So it's not just yeah. tunnels or human shields or rockets. It's rockets in underground areas protected by human shields. That's right. Yeah, because I mean, these rockets aren't sitting on the surface level. Um, although the IDF has a target list of known bunkers and things like that. None of these rockets sit on the surface level just waiting to be hit. These are usually in underground facilities to include underground launching points that are only revealed the last second. And I, I remember that from a lot of the footage of like Katusha rockets and things like that in the 2014 ground campaign. And I'll actually give a shout out here to a part of the IDF that's often neglected when we talk about either urban area or the IDF, which is the Israeli Navy, who's really taken a lead very quickly in locking down their domain and has started to interdict rocket teams, destroying some of these rocket launch facilities from the sea and um, sending in naval commandos into Gaza, it appears, as well. So, you know, we should remember that this is an all-domain operation for as much as we want to talk about the ground. It's worth mentioning that the Israeli Navy is going to be involved in any urban fight in Gaza as well. Yeah, we can't talk to the solutions to the challenge, Jacob. Now you're breaking it. Ah, Now I'm breaking the rule. That's right. Okay, next, anti-armor attacks, right? I believe... Well, I know from studying urban warfare, right? This is the whole, the tank is irrelevant ridiculousness that entering doesn't matter where on the planet, entering contested urban environments where the defender gets to establish its hidden points, its ambush points, its um, strong point defense, all of that, the enemy defender or the defender in general gets to do that. That's why I always say the defender has the initial advantage because it gets to choose the time of the engagement. In order to defeat that, you have to have heavy, mobile, protected firepower that can penetrate concrete. Now, that means tanks. Uh, that means heavy, other heavy armorized things like bulldozers and things like that. If you're going to enter a contested urban defense, you need those things. So I believe um, in from the history of uh, operations in Gaza and history of urban warfare in general, that that will be a major target in a challenge is anti-armor attacks from close and, uh, and near um, anti-armor, you know, ATGMs, you basically anything from uh, RPGs to cornets, stafagats to javelins to in-laws. Um, those are a threat and a massive challenge for any operation like that. Do you agree? I do agree. Um, and it's one feature we haven't seen of Hamas's arsenal so much yet. And that is likely because they're preserving them for the next phase when Israel's on the offensive, which is that ATGM threat. Right. Um, the RPGs, certainly, but the higher end of ATGMs like cornets are a very specific issue. And then there's another part of anti-armor tactics that we've seen Hamas and Hezbollah use in the past, 
which are large IEDs, really massive IEDs yep. to disable tank treads yeah. and to cause a end of movement to allow them to use an ATGMs and RPGs against infantry or softer vehicles. Um, in addition to that, we've seen already Hamas using drones yes. to do a top attack on vehicles. So far, mainly ambulances. Um, they've really targeted civilian vehicles and ambulances by drones. Um, but we could expect to see that grow on that target list grow and start to be used against armor. Though, without going into solution space That's too right. much, the Israeli armor is fairly one of the more the newer models of it are some of the more protected vehicles out there. Right. I'm not going into solution either, but the, the yep. there are very there there are unique Israeli solutions to many of the urban warfare challenges of entering contested urban areas. Um, and I like to remind on this one, anti-armor attacks specifically is that the U.S. Army lost six tanks in a single battalion entering in the second battle of Fallujah from volley fire of RPGs that didn't have the ability to penetrate the armor, but had the ability to like to at least mobility kill the vehicle um, because it is a threat in dense urban terrain. And that's exactly goes back to the additive, right? Now, if you think about you can have your anti-armor move in a protected or concealed subterranean environment to only fire at a position of maximum effectiveness. You can time that together with large-scale IEDs to get those mobility kills to cause casualties who will then need to be evacuated by soft-skinned vehicles like ambulances. Then you can bring in that drone fleet and all of that while you're using indirect from civilian uh, environments and from protected environments such as mosques and schools. So it's really, again, that any one of these challenges of the urban environment in Gaza, not so bad, but it's the additive right. nature of them, the exponential effect they have together. Yeah. And I can't, I, you know, drones, of course, right? So we'll, we'll quickly do that, right? That, I think that's a newer challenge based on the evolution of the character of warfare. And we saw some of this in the Hamas attack videos that they, they we don't know, but I don't know. Um, I did see, like you said, quadcopter drones, very similar to what we've seen in the evolution of drones in the Russia's illegal invasion in Ukraine. And in that war, used by Ukraine to defend themselves, but quadcopters that drop ATGM grenades um, onto the top of tanks where they're not vulnerable, but less protected. Uh, and large drones like the Iranian Shahids, but I think the drones, you already covered it, so I don't want to dig into it, but because of the evolution of the character of drones and the democratization of that technology and the lethality of them, it will be a major challenge. There are solutions to it, but a major challenge. So I agree with you, and I don't want to belabor the point, but yeah. I will mention that we shouldn't be surprised to see this. Iran has been a major supporter of Russia's illegal invasion of Ukraine yes, and has had observers and the ability to learn lessons. And I think possibly, again, for a different podcasts, there are lots of pieces of evidence of lessons learned from the Ukraine war and from Russia's illegal invasion being made use of by Hamas during this operation. Okay, next one. I 100% agree, 100%. Um, next one, you already touched on it, but I'll quickly give my two cents on it. Strong points, right? Strong points are heavily reinforced buildings, concrete, steel reinforced buildings, which become the linchpin or the anchor points to an a perimeter defense, since we already said that it's going to be really hard. You know, Hamas cannot execute a mobile defense, clearly. It cannot 
do an area defense because it doesn't have all the supporting obstacle belts that that would be that. It's mostly a perim- perimeter defense relying on the close battle and the the element of strong points. Strong points in urban warfare history, given a mission like this, enter the city and clear it, become very big challenges where you have historical examples. You're not just the Pavlov's house in Stalingrad, but in the Battle of Moir, all the major battles, the heavy buildings, you know, university buildings, whatever. But like you said, Hamas has been working on this and has specifically built buildings um, that will serve as their strong points and where they can turn, which will will become, because you don't achieve the mission to clear military capability. You cannot bomb to that, accomplishing that mission. You have to enter. It will turn into a block by block, house by house, combat and hell situation when Hamas will rely on these strong points and the use of snipers intermixed into strong points where they'll hold a single building and in past wars it's taken weeks and even months to take a single strong point building and there's already been one really good case of this in the city of steroid which is a city um along the gaza border that hamas attacked they were able to murder the police officers in the city and take over the police station. The police station had been built originally by the British to be a strong point in the 1930s. And the only way the Israeli police forces who were and special operations who were reassaulting that building to try to take it were able to eventually take it was to bring in heavy armored equipment, um, specifically demolition equipment like bulldozers, to dismantle the building around them. So 10 Hamas terrorists were able to hold that building for hours because of its construction and it resisted anti-tank missiles and other types of breaching. So it is something to be aware of, especially since Hamas through its underground capabilities may have the ability to fight a strong point and then withdraw from it using a form of small area defense in depth. And then should that strong point not be fully controlled, re-infiltrate it again. Um, And this is a maneuver or operation template that I call small area defense in depth where you can move forward and back among strong points using the subterranean environment and reinfiltrate them. Certainly Hamas has that capability. And to cause what I call the precision paradox, not I call, which I stole, you know, I, uh, my, my, my friend major or now Colonel Amos Fox coined in an article called precision paradox where yes, I can use modern technologies. I can bring in the biggest precision guided munition on a building once I know it's an enemy location, but with, because of the tunnel networks, he'll just go to the next building. So I dropped that building and now he's in a strong point to my right, and I got to drop that building, and it's called the Precision Paradox. Yeah. Okay. R- now, talking about the Precision Paradox and dropping strong points, rubble in a condensed urban environment, contested, where you have to enter it. Historically, rubble has been a major issue. Um, from the Battle of Stalingrad, where the German Air Force leveled 80% of the building before the battle started and it made it that the tanks couldn't get in there. Those vital mobile protected firepower to the battle of Mosul where general Townsend said you could not create a better bomb proof bunker than a rubbleized building with layers and layers of concrete in which the enemy then just occupies as a bunker. Do you believe rubble will be a challenge for the IDF? I believe it will be a really great challenge and one to be honest that they're not so used to dealing with. They're used to dealing with limited amounts of rubble. But if this becomes the kind of combat that we've seen historically, the truly significant amounts of rubble will be a challenge. Rubble also provides a challenge from other pictures, such as hurting your ability to geographically locate yourself. 
lot of soldiers will use landmarks and build numbered buildings as a way to um, locate their position and to understand their movement. The more an environment is rubbled, the harder that becomes. Also, those mobility corridors for the armored vehicles that are integral to combined arms movement in urban warfare will become a challenge. And also, it will eat engineering assets that are other needed elsewhere in terms of clearing that and opening up those mobility corridors. The rubble is going to be absolutely a major challenge for the IDF. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, all your lines of communication, right? A mobility corridor, evacuation corridor, you know, all those corridors. Supply routes. Yeah, supply routes, all that. All right, so next one. So we talked about absolutely uh, war is a contest of will, maintaining the will at all echelons, especially international uh, will to for the operation or in, in the execution of the, the operation casualties. As in when you engage in this type of operation, um, even with overmatch, because of the inherent defensive capabilities of a embedded uh, enemy who is willing to die for his cause in, in, in the urban environment, it is a high casualty. Usually we say more, right? So my, my close friend and our close friend, uh, urban warfare scholar as well in the Canadian army, Major Jason Drew, just list out all the mores you're going to need in urban combat in comparison to doing the same operation in a rule. You're going to need, you're going to take more casualties. You're going to need which is another challenge, but you're going to take cha- casualties because of the inherent advantages that the defender has. What? Do, how much do you think casualties? And historically, what is the impact of IDF casualties on will or on the operation? Do you think that is a major challenge, or is it um, because it is tied to will, not a challenge? So I think this has been a major challenge, but it's been a major challenge when the operation is seen as a nice to have, right? When it's seen as a limited operation, there's a question of why are we taking so many casualties for a limited objective? That's not going to be so much the case here. Already with the number over 1,200 killed, with the hostages in, in Gaza, with some of the imagery of really grotesque atrocities, carried out by Hamas and other individuals from Gaza, I don't think casualties are going to be a major issue in Will. But the part of more, I think, does become one, right? The more ammunition, the more bandages, that's the, next the challenge. more medical that's the next, person. That's the next, uh, I jumped ahead. You jumped ahead. Um, I, it was hard for me not to, too. Uh, how many casualties did the IDF take during Operation Protective Edge in 2014 in Gaza? Off the top of my head... It took in the dozens. Yes. Um, I think it took somewhere around 66. 60 or 70. Yeah. Um, and then somewhere around 500 wounded. Yeah. Um, 500, 600 wounded, okay. somewhere in that number. But that's all really off the top of my head, so I don't want to stand on those numbers. Yeah, I put it I put it in the article, um, what's the reported number, but I I don't put it in the article is what the ID, the Iraqi security force casualties were in, take, in liberating Mosul was – estimated about 10,000. Right. Very different order of magnitude. And the IDF probably cannot afford 10,000 casualties, right? That's beyond its afford number, given its size, but it's willing to take... I imagine it will be very much willing to take the casualties here. Um, You'll probably see higher casualties right now than you will have in previous IDF wars because, again, the medical system is strained, the medics are strained, but as they are mobilizing and continuing to mobilize as a society that's also going to become less strained. So there's a window where that's hurting. 
Yeah. But that window will start to close. Okay. Next one more, right? Major Jason Drew, she likes me to talk about him on my podcast. Uh, more <laughs> ammunition, right? You're going to need more food, more water, uh, more psychological injuries, uh, but ammo. Um, based on some of the challenges we're talking about, uh, to include everything from interceptor missiles to, uh, main battle tank rounds to small arms to, uh, to active protection system rounds, how much of a factor uh, to artillery rounds, right? This is the, the interesting thing is that people still think artillery rounds, even after watching the battle, the, the, the peer competition, uh, in the Russia Ukraine war and understanding that they're firing 6,000, 10,000, 20,000 artillery rounds a day in some, like in the battle of Bakhmut, um, how much artillery rounds are still a very vital part of this type of warfare, contested urban environments. How much do you think ammo stockpiles will become an issue for the IDF? They're going to be an issue throughout, and that's part of where the international support is so important, and particularly the U.S. support. In the past, when the U.S. has wanted to force Israel to end an operation, it threatened resupply of things like Hellfire missiles or um, rotor assembly nuts or things like this. This is been a case of leverage so it's really going to need the israelis are really going to need that more and more and more because you're exactly right this is going to eat a lot of those supplies it's going to eat a lot of specialist equipment it's going to eat a lot of drones it's going to eat a lot of communications equipment it's going to eat a lot of kevlar body armor ammunition grenades you name it it's going to eat a lot of that equipment and so really the will of the u.s people Actually, very similarly to Ukraine, the will of the U.S. people to be willing to support this is going to be absolutely, absolutely critical. And so really, it's almost a way, a visible way and a measurable way where we can see if the U.S. is putting its kind of money where its mouth is when it says we stand with Israel and we stand in solidarity. And the U.S. population might put its money where its mouth is as well on that. And I do mean money here, literally, right, because it's buying and supplying all of these really critical goods. And that's only when we're talking one front. There's the possibility of escalation to two or more fronts, including Syria and Lebanon, as well as the West Bank. And that will just increase yeah. that consumption rate. This is where I get, I get frustrated when something when an uninformed person about the requirements of large-scale combat operations says, why does Israel need ammunition? Why do, it, knows it's, it knows the potentials of war. Why doesn't it have its own stockpiles of ammunition? People don't understand the scale and expenditure of all ammunition in an operation like this, especially artillery rounds. You think we'd learn that in the last, you know, 500 plus days going on 600 days of the Ukraine war is that this type of urban warfare requires immense amounts of ammunition in the, even in, in the battle of Raqqa, the U S Marine unit artillery unit in support fired 335,000 artillery rounds in a single month that that was more than it had fired in over two decades uh the the numbers are just off the charts on what will be required and no country maintains besides the u.s that level of industrial military industrial base capability to ramp up or stockpiles and you're entirely right and i agree a hundred percent on everything you just said i will say do you think we sh- people would have learned by now? This is why I'm a historian, right? It's because there are a lot of, you would think people would have learned by now 
and yet they haven't. Is that and the so historian is, mantra? Right, that should be. It should be our unofficial like uh, tab on our army historian uniforms. You think you would have learned by now, right? But unfortunately, it takes people doing what you're doing and these conversations to bring to mind, oh, wait, we know how this is going to go. We know these kinds of expenditures. We need to ramp up. Yeah. Okay. So you're going to need more. Like you said, you're going to need more medical supplies. You're going to need more food, MREs, more than any country has stockpiled. This is why this is when you say you stand with Israel, that means, and when you say support. And one of the first, I found this very interesting, but I found it interesting as a data point to show people that one of the first, when, and when basically the Israel 9-11 happened, just like all Israel did for us and all other countries, we support you. Uh, What do you need? to defend yourselves. And one of the first answers to that question from Israel was, I need, uh, I need Iron Dome interceptor missiles and JDAM. And that was one of the first yeah. requests over on the, like the second day. I know the interceptors are going to play a really, really, and continue to play a really, really big role. Um, and obviously food, right? When you've mobile, an army marches on the stomach, one of the resources everyone often forgets about is just keeping everyone this mobilized, how food intensive it is, and also mobilizing this significant portion of your population. Some of the things that you rely on as a country, um, such as the tomato harvest, right? Right now in the south of Israel is roughly the time of the tomato harvest. So you're going to see crop failure. You're going to see huge economic impacts of mobilizing this part of the population. So it's not just the stuff we tend to think about of more for the material of war, but it's also that societal sustainment of that equipment through finances, through food production. The impact of this period is going to go well beyond the immediate war. Um, And so another thing that will come up is people are going to say, well, the fighting's over. They don't need any more aid. Uh, We could see historically that's not the case. This is going to have a much longer tail right. than the initial combat phase. Absolutely. And this is, again, why why do I see fundraising already to, to, to mobilize food to IDF reserve forces? Right. So you got to understand the scale. Uh, okay, last one, and I know I've already busted. I, I don't care. Uh, what are the unknowns? Like we can predict based on the history of uh, urban operations, the, the, the knowns of Hamas military capabilities, the knowns of IDF, capabilities to achieve this mission and i do think they can do it um militarily uh what are the unknowns that are the the things that we don't know may be in the operating environment and to conduct a large-scale combat operation against a densely urban contested area so i think the first unknown is i'll go from strategic kind of down to tactical the first unknown is who else is going to get involved okay right and what happens when they do if this spreads to other borders if this spreads domestically what effect is that going to have and how will those be linked? So that's kind of the big strategic unknown, right? As we get down to kind of the operational level, Hamas has had a really long time to prepare for this. They've known this is coming and they've known roughly what an IDF operation would look like because of the limited terrain, et cetera, that's available to them. So what has Hamas done to fortify itself? Hamas has shown itself to be a very innovative force. So what innovations have it made, has it made? To what extent are there IEDs? To what extent are there new uses of the subterranean environment? Hamas has tried to use the maritime domain quite heavily. So far, it hasn't been successful or terribly successful. What can it leverage in that environment? Has it received high-end capabilities from Iranian partners? So in 2006, Hezbollah had Chinese-made silkworm 
anti-ship missiles that they brought out during a point in the war. So what high-end capabilities might be there? And then the last two are what capabilities globally has it brought to bear in terms of the information and cyber domain? Almost every war that Israel's fought, every major operation, has had a large cyber defense component as backers and friends of Hamas or Hamas itself or the Iranians have sought to launch really high-level and serious cyber attacks on Israel's economy, infrastructure, and organizations. Also, EW perspective, what electronic warfare capabilities has Hamas been able to bring in from Iran and its expertise in that? And finally, will this internationalize? There has been calls for days of jihad and days of rage against Jewish targets globally. If that happens, that will be a profound effect and may change the risk calculus for international partners, right? We may want to stay further out, or if not the U.S., other international partners may lose their appetite for vociferous support if vociferous support could lead to terrorism at home. So whether this conflict internationalizes. See, that's why I brought you on. So my only one was surface-to-air manpad, you know, missiles. So manpads, like like this. Oh, yeah, those two. <laughs> <laughs> like stingers and SA-7s and all those apparatus that would, uh, because you if you do have air superiority, air supremacy, uh, air assets are a huge element, uh, especially close air support, like attack helicopters and things like that um, in an intense urban fight like this. But that's why I bring the experts on. <laughs> and I would add to that, by the way, new uses of drones, UAVs, loiter munitions, that full panoply that we've seen in Ukraine, I could absolutely see playing a factor here. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Jacob, um, I went over my my ideal time, but this is a huge topic of, of the challenges very specific to a potential ground campaign into the Gaza Strip uh, with lots of lessons from the past, from modern history. I appreciate your time. You think we would have learned by now. I, I love that mantra. Um, uh, I stand with Israel in, in the conduct of this operation. And if people want to talk about how do you uh, overcome these challenges? Uh, come to the 4030D operations or urban operations planners course, and we'll talk about it. Thanks for your time, Jacob. John, thank you. I would say it's a pleasure, but it's a pleasure under a dark cloud of terrible circumstances. And I would repeat the plug for the 4030ID urban planners course to start thinking about how we overcome these challenges. I hope we get to speak again. I hope we get to do another podcast together, hopefully on a happier time. Thank you very much for having me, John. Thanks, Jacob. Thanks for listening to the Urban Warfare Project podcast. The podcast is produced by the Modern War Institute at West Point. What you hear in each episode are the views of their participants and do not represent the positions of West Point, the Army, or the U.S. government. You can subscribe to the Urban Warfare Project podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. And be sure to check out NDY's other podcasts, as well as the new articles we're publishing every day on our website. Thanks again for listening.